0: Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton.
1: And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Steve Glavesky, the author of the new book that's released today, Employee to Entrepreneur, and the host of the podcast, Future Squared, and the founder of the corporate innovation firm, Collective Campus, which goes all around Australia, helping corporates become more and function more like a startup.
0: An all-round legend of a bloke. Steve was kind enough to give us an advanced copy of his book, so we checked it out uh, over the last couple of weeks, and I really enjoyed the realistic and holistic approach to starting a business, not just the, uh, the stereotypical quit your job and follow your passion idea. I, f- I found this much more relatable, and uh, his podcast is great as well. He's had some phenomenal guests like uh, Adam Grant, uh, Chip Conley, and uh, Big Bad Robert Green. Uh, it was a phenomenal episode as well, and I'd say check out his podcast, Future Squared, soon to feature. Adam and Adam.
1: Yeah, we got interviewed as well. So head over there and and check out his podcast.
0: Steve, time. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, we're going to start with a nice easy question. Your mission. It's a big mission.
2: mission. It is a big mission. Um, Our mission effectively is to unlock the latent potential of people to create impact in the world and lead more fulfilling lives.
0: Oh yeah, nice. And so, how does that uh, how does that play out now? That's a it's a good mission. It's a good why. Yep. Um How does that play out in the the day to day world of Steve?
2: Yeah. So, in the day to day world of Steve, um, this plays out at three levels. Um, so, Collective Campus is the organization I um, oversee, if you will. Um, we are basically a corporate innovation and startup accelerator, and we've been around for about three and a half years. And we work with anything from large organizations like BNP, Paribas, National Australia Bank uh, through to startups. We've incubated close to 100 startups and helped them raise about 25 million US dollars. And then we go down to the level of kids as well. or Maybe not down to the level of kids, but we also work with kids as part of our Lemonade Stand program, which is a children's entrepreneurship program we've been running for a couple of years now. And um, we're really excited that it's 2019 because this is the year we take our... Um, face-to-face program, um, we've turned it into an online platform and we'll be selling this to schools um, this quarter um, which is really exciting for us to have a scalable product rather than just um, rely on face-to-face uh, facilitation of classes.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing vision and you've just uh, recently released the book Employee to Entrepreneur that comes out today at the time of releasing the podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you started out in your corporate career, Uh, I'd imagine it was a slightly different vision. So, can you just take us back to where you started and what you were going through in your minds back then in corporate and and how related were you to this mission that you're on now back then?
2: I I would say I was totally unrelated or diametrically opposed, (laughs) if you will. Um, And I think like most of us, uh, I was going through life trying to conform to society's expectations of what success looks like. Uh, And that, I guess, comes from upbringing, upbringing, you know, my parents moved to this country from Macedonia back in 1971. They didn't speak English. They didn't have any money. They worked really hard to give their kids an opportunity. And for them, they wanted to see their kids grow up where rather than work uh, in, a, in a factory with your blue overalls, they wanted to see their kids wearing a suit, a tie, Uh, Making good money and again conforming to society's expectations of success, and so that's what I did. You know, I studied business and I got a master's in accounting, and I found myself working at uh, Ernst and Young, um, which you know I learned a hell of a lot there for the first couple of years. Um, I think you can learn a hell of a lot in the corporate world um, when it comes to communication skills, planning, um, interpersonal skills. Like, there's a hell of a lot you take out of that world, Um, but at some point, I found that the learning curve tapered off. But to bring it back to your question, Adam, around the purpose, the purpose really was just to make money (laughs) uh, and to be seen, uh, to make money and to derive some sense of social status. Mm. Uh, But that, if you have some sense of introspection, will only take you so far and eventually you start asking questions and you start asking what's the actual underlying why here um, because you'll find yourself with lots of zeros in your bank account uh, maybe not that many zeros, but enough <laughs> enough for a 29-year-old at the time. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, um, as I say in the book, I, I, I'd find myself on the train station platform over at Parliament Station. And then I'd just be questioning what did I actually contribute today? And it's ultimately a feeling of being miserably comfortable. Mm.
0: Nice. I think it is, as you say, early on, I think a lot of people fall into that trap of they have their main values as money and social status. And then uh, some lucky people, I guess, add a few other different values into there later on. So what are some of those values that you've added in on top of uh, or perhaps instead of the money and the status?
2: Yeah. So for me, it's been uh, learning has been a massive value. Uh, Like I want to feel like I'm constantly being challenged and growing and learning stuff that I can apply, not just in the workplace, but also in my day-to-day life Uh, freedom. Um, So there's a a bit of parallels. There's a a bit of a parallel here between what I, what values I've added and say Dan Pink's uh, book drive, mastery, autonomy and purpose. So for me, those three are really the the big, big, big three. And I talk about this in the book with the five F's. So freedom, fulfillment, uh, friendship, uh, They're really the kinds of things that I I value these days because you can give me money, you can give me social status, but unless I believe in the why, um, unless I'm learning and growing and unless I have some form of autonomy to to drive the direction in which I'm going and and to really imprint my DNA on an organization or a project, then I'm going to be ultimately disconnected from that work and not really bringing my A game.
0: Mm. And the other thing you mentioned was the, you know, standing on the train station and the platform thing, what the what the hell did I do today? Uh, I was definitely there myself in that, you know, writing reports and making Excel spreadsheets yeah. and PowerPoint presentations. Uh, I don't know, it seems like a very small thing that there's not, not a whole lot of contribution there and not a whole lot of benefit or value that you're creating there. So I mm. guess... Uh what are some of the, the like the start of the book you talk about some of the downsides I guess of the the corporate life um not to go full too extreme but what, are, what what were some of the downsides that you saw that you know the corporate life wasn't quite giving for you
2: Some of the downsides I would say would be that Firstly, the nature of the work uh, for me, and this isn't true of every corporate role because there's so many different types of organizations out there and different types of industries. So it's about finding one that really resonates for you. But for me, I was basically helping big listed organizations comply with their SEC, ASX, whatever regulations, and oftentimes making recommendations that uh, weren't heeded. and you come back the next year and make the same (laughs) recommendations. So that's definitely a downside where even the work you're doing doesn't seem to be creating any value for anyone. Um, But it was really a case of uh, a lot of political game playing, I found, rather than people taking ownership um, over their decisions and moving forward. You know, the whole Jeff Bezos commitment over consensus. It was a lot of political game playing, a lot of meetings, a lot of time wasted, a lot of FaceTime. So people being expected to be in the office till like 7, 8, 9, 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. just to be seen in the office. And people often... I, I normally would try and leave by, say, six because um, I, I am a big believer in focus on the outcome, not the input. And and that was fine. But so many people, I would ask a question or I would pose the question, hey, man, why are you at the office till 9 p.m.? And they would often shoot back and say, well, my partner, uh, he's still in the office. So I have to stay until they leave, <laughs> despite the fact that no work was being done. Yeah, being it's yeah. ridiculous, <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: That was... Uh, Yes, similar to my experience in an office, I remember the same people who would be working till 8 or 9 p.m. would be the same people you'd be walking in the office and they seem to be taking 12 shits a day. Like yeah, <laughs> any <laughs> any excuse to get away from their desk and then you walk past and you're on 9 MSN News and you're like, hang well, why are you here for 15 hours? If you Like you're doing nothing. You can probably yeah. get it done in two
2: hours and go home. But Yeah. yeah. Jason Freed um, from Basecamp calls this the presence prison. Ah. where yeah you're, you, it's basically prison you're expected to be present despite the fact that mm-hmm. you're not doing any work and up people have a lot of as we call as we say in australia smokers they go out for a cigarette or they might go to the toilet and look at their phone for 30 minutes and all these sorts of non-consequential things but there it just means that they can somehow turn this presence prison into something that they can actually put up with for a few hours a day
0: mm. yeah it's pretty crazy
2: isn't yeah
1: absolutely yeah. i mean uh, so I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now who really connect with this early part of your story, uh, Ash Joe, as well, and myself mm. included. So they might be sitting there; they're a little bit disillusioned with corporate. They they don't see they got the same issues that you had. Now, what do they what do they do next? As to maximise the best chance of them doing something that they're, they're really loving and you know productive in society.
2: Yeah, look, so, there's a few things you want to look at there. I mean, firstly. You know, it's not about just following your passion. Um, It's more so around identifying and your purpose will be malleable. You know, people say, find your purpose, but purpose will shift and evolve over time. But it is about if you're going to take that leap and leave the corporate world, um, finding something that you truly believe in, I think is really fundamental because if you don't believe in it, you're going to give up when the going gets tough. For example, my first real foray into entrepreneurship was with a platform called Hotdesk which was an, an offer-sharing platform um, that I founded while I was still working over at Macquarie Bank. Uh, literally spent a couple of grand building a prototype, uh, wrote the press release to promote the prototype on my own, literally just Google how to write a press release, <laughs> and then sent about 100 emails out to journalists. Um, I found their email addresses through Twitter. And of course, one of the 100 emails, uh, one of the 100 journalists got back to me. But they promoted. they published a one-page article in the Australian newspaper and that then got picked up um, in the Macquarie News, which is an email that gets sent out to 14,000 Macquarie Bank employees. So my manager tapped me on the shoulder <laughs> and said, hey, what's this hot desk stuff all about? And I had to ensure him that it was just a side project until, of course, that article got the interest of investors. And three months later, I'd raised about $156,000 and that was my ticket out of that corporate world. And I said, well, let's give this a year and see how we go. It's been seven and um, there's no looking back. But uh, the thing with Hotdesk was it was incredibly easy to build the supply side. Like there's so many entrepreneurs out there building two sided marketplaces, you know, Airbnb for dogs, Airbnb for cats, you name it. Uh, and the thing about that is it's about 10 times harder to build a double sided marketplace and a single sided one because you've got to get the business model right for supply, demand, and then you've got to bring it together in a way that makes meaningful sense. Uh, and for me after the end of well towards the end of that journey uh, I worked on that for a couple of years built the supply side demand was okay but nothing to write home about I realized that look if I, I want to keep doing entrepreneurship but if I'm going to play the long game if I'm going to keep doing this for 5 10 15 years I need to do something that I believe in because that's going to get me up out of bed every morning with a spring in my step and I'm going to bring 110% and I just needed to move on because I didn't want to be a glorified real estate agent. So the first thing definitely is finding that purpose. Um, But the second thing, at the same time, you don't want that to be inhibiting in a way. You don't want that to paralyze you to the point where, well, I don't know what my purpose is. Um, So even before that, like if you're unsure what your purpose is, get out there, you know, have different experiences, read different books, um, listen to different types of podcasts. And I talk about this in, in the book and I refer to this as collecting the dots, Because as Steve Jobs said, you can only connect the dots looking backwards, not looking forwards. So a lot of people I speak to and regrettably they say something like, oh, I don't know what my passion or more more poignantly what my purpose is. And it's really because they haven't done enough exploring. Um, I'm not sure who it was that said genius is just the ability to see. But that ability to see comes from collecting a lot of dots. And then the pattern recognition that comes with that means that you identify opportunities um, that others won't. Mm. Nice. Uh, so,
0: in your book, uh, Employee to Entrepreneur, uh, it's a book, obviously, the, the title suggests uh, I, I was thinking, oh, it's, you it's know, another quit your job and follow your passion and uh, yeah. you know, jobs suck and the only way to enjoy life is business. Uh, but I really like that it started off with that idea of collecting the dots. So, it's not just about that. It's about constantly learning and exposing yourself to new environments and new ideas. Mm. And I also liked uh, not many of these sort of quit your job, follow your passion books start with the idea of there's like, you gave a list of 10 or 11 things that you could do other than quit your job and start your business. So, I think it's, uh, I really like to, you know, we're not just blowing smoke here, but I really like that, you know, this idea of this business book that starts with, you know, collect the dots and then it starts with, hang on, this is not the only way. There's actually 10 or 11 different other things you can try
2: instead. 100%. And so many people get enamored by the bright lights of entrepreneurship, you know, they might read TechCrunch and Mashable and read about companies raising billions of dollars in some cases or getting unicorn status. They might watch the social network or Silicon Valley's startup on on Amazon Prime and, and things of that sort um, and think, oh, wow, maybe I should just start my own business. But I, I believe it was Ariana Huffington, potentially, who said that entrepreneurs quit a a 40-hour-a-week job where they're making 80K to work 80 hours a week and make 40K. It's really, really difficult. And before you even embark upon that as... Before you even leap to conclusions and say, okay, I'm going to become an entrepreneur, you want to take a step back and say, well, what are my alternatives? I mean, if you don't like your boss, then becoming an entrepreneur is a pretty radical step to take. Like you can potentially make a lateral move inside that organization or you can join another organization in the same industry. Perhaps you're just not too inclined to that industry or that type of work and you want to move into a different industry or maybe go back to school, get some new skill sets and and do that. Um, A lot of people I find just don't have hobbies or interests outside of work and they just need to pursue that. I remember when I was working at EY, I ran a heavy metal nightclub uh, once a week, every Friday night called Madhouse. And my relationship with my work, my day job became a lot more positive because I had this outlet on the side uh, rather than just quitting my job and becoming a heavy metal nightclub operator full time, mm. which is probably not going to be a very wise business decision or life decision. Um, There are a number of different things you should do before you even consider becoming an entrepreneur, unless, unless, unless what you really crave is that freedom, Mm -hmm. uh, not being accountable to someone else. And and the kinds of things you want to explore are fraught with uncertainty and risk, because you're probably not going to get a genuine opportunity to explore that inside the four walls of a big organization. Because if you're a big company, potentially listed, accountable to shareholders, it's short-term, um, it's short-termism and the opportunity to do something that may not deliver an ROI in five years six years seven years it gets paid lip service to but isn't really pursued so
1: yeah uh, yeah that's great and on this idea of um, collecting or not collecting the dots but just making a whole bunch of dots so you can collect them in the future uh, I think in your book you say how learning is a big part of this and what it, what's your process of learning relevant things that are going to pop-up dots that in future you're going to have this beautiful line towards something that you end up doing?
2: Yeah. So, a little bit of it is intentional and then part of it is, as as I like to say, you know, positive serendipity in a way. So, um, what are the skill sets? Well, firstly, where do I need to be? What skill sets are going to get me there? And then identifying uh, best-of-breed books, uh, podcasts, people um, who can... Uh, help me get there. So basically standing on the shoulders of giants. And when I do that, um, it's not just a matter of reading, say, a book. It's a matter of reading the book, highlighting key sections, taking those key sections out, turning them into a Google doc, potentially turning that Google doc into a blog post, sharing those learnings with my team, maybe turning that blog post into a podcast episode, and then incorporating uh, those learnings into conversations I have on my podcast, Future Squared, by actually teaching other people you, I I tend to retain a hell of a lot more of those learnings, but then also the next piece is applying it in my business. So if I read a book on, uh, say, time hacks or automation hacks, actually applying that um, is going to make me, well, there's no point in reading a hell of a lot of books if I'm not going to apply it, right? So that's definitely what I do. And then also creating a bit of room for serendipity whereby I will read something that isn't glaringly, obviously related to my business, Um, but will help me make new connections um, where I could read something. For example, the most transformational books in my life haven't been business books. They've been books on, say, neuroscience, uh, books on philosophy, mindset, psychology, because they help me better understand myself. And if I better understand myself, then... The way I show up every day, the decisions I make um, are improved and you know you, you are the sum of the of the decisions you make, right? So a uh, recent book I read, uh, Why We Sleep by Matt Walker, who I think you guys should try and get on the show. He's phenomenal. Uh, that reminded me or that informed me of the importance of getting eight hours sleep a night because for so long I was hustling and, and bragging to people that, hey, six hours sleep a night is all you need. But turns out those last two hours of sleep is where you get your deep REM sleep, um, whereby you regulate your mood, so you become a more pleasant person, life becomes more pleasant, and also, that's where you become a hell of a lot more creative. So, as an entrepreneur, not just coming up with the initial idea, but solving problems that will inevitably come up on a day-to-day basis, you can't afford not to get that, you know, 8 hours sleep a night.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. So, that's it is important to be constantly learning. It's something you've, uh, I think you said in the book, you read a book. Every fortnight, mm-hmm. uh, podcast episode every day. Yep. Uh, so it's always constantly learning. So maybe okay, we've been collecting the dots. We've been we're constantly learning. We're open to new experiences. Maybe we've tried some of those eleven things that you suggest uh, before you know quitting your job and starting your business. If people are still enticed by this idea, okay, I think I want to do something towards heading towards entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. How do you suggest people get started? And uh, yeah, actually, how do you suggest people get started?
2: Yeah, fantastic. Uh, What I see a lot of employees to an entrepreneur do, or the the pitfalls I see them fall into, is one, paralysis analysis, and two, jumping to conclusions. So on jumping to conclusions, they'll have an idea and they'll think it's the best idea in the world. They won't share it with anyone. They don't want anyone to steal their idea. Problem with that is people won't steal your idea. Um, Chances of that happening is like 0.01%, because who's going to take your idea that's You know, got a 99% chance of failure. Work with it for the next two to three years to turn it into something successful. Hey, good luck to them if they do that. (laughs) But your competitive advantage today isn't about the idea. It's about the execution. And chances are, whatever idea you have, there's 20, 30, 40, 50 people around the world working on the same thing. So it's about who can execute better and faster. Um, So jumping to conclusions is one, and that manifests itself by people, say, hiring a app development company or something to that effect and paying them 50K to build a mm-hmm. first version of a product before a customer has seen it, they'll probably take out a bank loan or spend their entire savings on that. They'll release a the product and lo and behold, crickets, right? And because it's been a big, hairy, audacious failure, what happens is they're like, wow, this sucks. I'm going to go back to the comfort of a paycheck and they never mm-hmm. return. The other side of that was on um, paralysis analysis. so And that's something that people learn or pick up is a its a byproduct of being in the corporate world where you want everything to be perfect because you are working in an organization where there is a lot of certainty. You're making money today. You've got customers. You're listed. You've got shareholders you're accountable to. Everything needs to be hunky-dory. Uh, you can't just be releasing stuff that's, you know, um, half cut. Um, and as a byproduct of that, what happens is when you jump out, you're thinking, well, I need this to be absolutely perfect before I move. Uh, but the thing with entrepreneurship where there's a hell of a lot of uncertain, uncertainty and a lot of unknown variables is there is no such thing as perfect. As uh, Paulo Coelho put it in The Alchemist, uh, you need to go on the journey in order to discover the answers. So the first thing people should do um, to avoid both paralysis analysis and jumping to conclusions is really identify what does the underlying business model look like and at a high level focusing or honing in on the problem the solution and the customer segment and maybe even the revenue model once you've got that mapped out it's about identifying what are the key make or break assumptions underpin problem solution customer segment and then finding a quick cheap dirty way Mm -hmm. to test that Um, so an example could be and one example I provide in the book is of uber so if you went back to say 2008 uh, and you wanted to test whether or not that kind of model would work, you'd ask yourself, well, what is the make or break assumptions that underpin success here? And the biggest one would be trust. You know, trust mm-hmm. that I'm gonna get into a car with a stranger, trust that a stranger um isn't gonna you know stab me through the back seat like it's a gangster yeah. movie or something. <laughs> uh, Robert De Niro styles. Um and How would you test that? Well, you could go out and build the app and spend 50K on that and then spend a hell of a lot of money finding drivers and then doing your marketing to get the demand side on board. Or you could just go out to a busy taxi rank on a Saturday night in Melbourne at Flinders Street Station or something like that and just talk to people in the line and say, hey, would you pay $20 to get home in a private car tonight? Um, All above board, here's some driver credentials. Yes, no. And just speak to as many people as possible and Mm -hmm. see what percentage convert. You can do that in one night. It's a much cheaper test. might cost you, you know, few hundred dollars potentially maybe not even uh it's just really your time but what people do is they'll pontificate and deliberate and they'll go out and spend a whole bunch of money on stuff that isn't necessary um and by doing that you're getting the learnings you need much earlier much faster in the piece and therefore you can start to make more informed decisions um and that will also start to build your confidence as well as you start to get some positive feedback on that journey nice yeah
0: it's something we we hear a lot but i think it's until you hear it, you don't you don't realize that that's the way to do it. Start with something super small to test. What's the actual underlying thing that I'm trying to do here, and how do I test that? Mm. So I think that's that's super important. Another thing at the start, you know, someone who's an employee wants to become an entrepreneur. Maybe it feels like there's so much stuff. You know, you've got to you've got to build a product. You've got to then market that product. Yep. You need to find customers. It seems like there's so much involved in starting a business. Uh, what would you say boils down to the a couple of the most important things to start off with? Because I'm sure there's a lot of those things that you probably don't need to worry about straight away.
2: Yeah. Uh, a lot of startups will preoccupy themselves. A lot of startup founders will preoccupy themselves with marketing and, and sales hacks and things of that persuasion. Um, and that's because they have a false belief that The reason their business isn't doing well is because it's a marketing problem, but it's more likely than not a value proposition problem. Uh, CB Insights published a report last year that found the top, well, which was around the top 20 reasons startups fail. Number one reason was market failure. Number two, three, four, five are all byproducts of market failure, like running out of cash. Well, if you had a value proposition that made money, you wouldn't run out of cash, right? So... That really is where people should focus um, on honing that value proposition and making sure that the product they're taking to market, there is demand for, and people will pay more for that product than actually costs you to build and deliver to the customer. Uh, seems simple, but so many people overlook that. Uh, one thing a lot of entrepreneurs fall into the trap of is they start with funding. They start by thinking that, okay, I'm seeing these startups online, they're all raising funding, I need to raise funding as well. The problem with that is if you're not making any revenue yet and you go to market looking for funding, firstly, it's going to eat up a hell of a lot of your time. You're not going to be focusing on finding a value proposition. You're just going to be focused on finding funding. You will, If you're successful raising, you'll raise at a very low valuation because you haven't got revenue yet. You'll give away a bigger chunk of your business um, and you're probably going to raise from unsophisticated investors. Uh, because you haven't got revenue yet, right? So, And then you become accountable to someone else. So if you left the corporate world because you didn't like being accountable to someone, well, guess what? Now you're accountable to investors, right? (laughs) And the way some of those um, term sheets are structured, particularly with some VC firms, they could have what's called a liquidation preference in place, which means that if you do build a, a successful business and sell it for, say, $50 million, your investor might get $3 for every dollar they invested before you see a single cent, Um, which means that you could work really hard to make someone who's already rich richer and at at the end of the day, walk away with very, very little. So if you are going to raise funding, raise funding once you need it, right? Mm -hmm. Focus on the value proposition, focus on building a business that makes money. Then and only then, when you need that money to scale, you can raise from more sophisticated investors who are going to give you better terms and you can raise at a higher valuation and give away less of your business. Um, So that's one big pitfall um, that I see entrepreneurs fall into when they're just starting out. So, Focus on value proposition, not on funding, unless you're in something like biotech that requires millions of dollars to get going.
1: Mm. And you can probably do all this on the weekend with your your income as well if you're making these minimum bets. So, it's like a real benefit of actually not having all the time in the world and all the money because, yeah, you're mm-hmm. finding the, the leanest way to do things.
2: Yeah, 100%, man. Um, people, you know, throw away, throw around the term side hustle these days and... Yeah, definitely. The challenge with the side hustle, though, is if you're working full time, uh, you get back home, say 7 p.m. in the evening, you've only got so much time left. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but cognitively, like if you actually have a demanding job that requires you to think during the day, you've probably done all your deep work for the day. And so you're basically working with cognitive scraps at that point. Um, You know, if that's all you've got, great. You know, that's you're going to have to make do with that. Um, you've still got your weekends, but you know, if you've got a family and kids, it can be difficult, right? So one thing I find um people may want to consider is what I call a reverse side hustle. Uh and this is where you basically if you've been in corporate for a long time, if you've got a particular skill set, you're then there's a lot of contractor roles that are up for grabs in that space. So you could get a contractor gig that pays really well um in terms of a day rate. Um, for example, when I started collective campus first seven months, I worked over at KPMG and their innovation team. Um, and I had a contractor rate that was close to a thousand dollars a day. So two days a week for me was enough. And then I had three days, three weekdays where I could be completely focused on the business, cognitively firing from the morning. Uh, it wasn't scraps. Uh, it was my best self. And then obviously weekends on top of that. So that way you can bring a hell of a lot more to the table without sacrificing, um, your your day job you've actually got money coming in which is reasonable enough to keep you going i'm not privy to you listeners' uh, financial circumstances but most con- contractor roles even if it's three days a week mm-hmm. that still gives you two full days rather than say a couple of hours every night to, to focus on the side hustle
1: yeah i, I love that idea of yeah because you're dealing with cognitive scraps otherwise but that idea of uh you know becoming a contractor mm-hmm. it you might need to get the the rare and valuable skills in the first place to be actually good enough to actually um, sell your own skills to a, another, mm-hmm. uh, to some kind of uh, business. So I feel like there's this this challenge and this balance between uh, following your passion, quitting your job and then going and doing something you love and, and, and so forth but at the same time having on the ground rare and valuable skills that you actually uh, work really hard to do at which might be mundane and a little bit, boring Mm -hmm. so i guess i don't really have a question what are your thoughts on that that balance and where do you uh see the other side of doing the mundane boring stuff to actually get leverage and uh, career capital so to speak so you can actually use this leverage to really start pointing where your career actually goes
2: yeah well you know a big part of collecting dots is really that work experience as well, which does help you determine where you want to go. And you find that a lot of entrepreneurs who are successful are working in the space where perhaps they had um, exposure to it in the corporate world. Um, a lot of people come out of financial services and start fintech startups, tech startups, things of that sort. But you need to be objective about that and determine whether or not the learnings you're getting on a day-to-day basis are actually going to serve you uh, or whether or not you're just living... A false purpose like Robert Green says um, whereby and this goes back to what we talked about earlier people go through life just looking for status and money learning a bunch of stuff that's not really going to apply elsewhere having said that if you look closely enough you're going to pick up a lot of transferable skill sets right the way you interact with people the way you do research planning analysis um, the way you identify certain opportunities in an industry like you just need to look uh, closely enough and not just discount what you're doing on the surface and one thing I like to say on that whereby People just look at the what, really look at the underlying things you're learning, but also the how. For example, if I'm a garbage cleaner, it's very easy to conflate that well with I'm, j- I'm just a garbage cleaner, mm-hmm. rather than I keep the streets clean so children have somewhere safe to play. Uh, that, that changes the game, but yeah. also the skills that they're going to learn. As a garbage cleaner, um, You know, over- overcoming adversity, um, overcoming people's opinions of you, and as uh, Seneca says... Um, there's nothing worse than living life in accordance with other people's opinions. You know, if you do that, you'll never be rich. But if you live life in accordance with nature, you'll never be poor. Um, And that's why philosophy is so big for me. And as an entrepreneur, when you're just starting out, and I'm kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here, Mm -hmm. but when you're just starting out, it's very easy to compare yourself to your former associates and colleagues in the corporate world who are probably on six figures, living very comfortably. And if all you do is compare yourself to them based on that one metric, you're probably not gonna last very long. Yeah, um, you wanna focus on learning um, during those first year or two, that first year or two, but also on the other things that they haven't got, like the freedom that you've got to really build your own life. Uh, so yeah, that that mindset shift is, is really key, particularly when you're just starting out. Yeah, nice. As I said, I really like
0: the, the book that I was perhaps at first expecting a, you know, quit your job and start a business, but it's really yeah. all that you know, the constant learning Uh, You bring in psychology and cognitive biases, you talk about philosophy, you talk about, um, you know, procrastination, you also talk about 10xing your output. Mm -hmm. Um, So towards the end, some of the things that that you do and other people can do to really increase that output. Uh, You had a really uh, popular article just in the last couple of weeks um, talking about your new approach to work. Um, So tell us about that.
2: Yeah, and I guess that doubles down on what you asked earlier around what should people do when they start out. Like So many entrepreneurs will focus on trying to do anything and everything in the business, marketing, sales, admin, um, product development, project management, but you can only do so many things. So identifying what are your strengths and doubling down on that, outsourcing, automating, and or cutting everything else. So the article you referred to was um, the case for the uh, six-hour workday, which was in Harvard Business Review. And it's funny because... It's so easy to fall into the trap of just working long hours, 12-hour days, 14-hour days when you when you become an entrepreneur and, and stick to that because a lot of people may derive a sense of identity from that um, and use it as a form of escapism as well because why should I go out and work on myself in the real world when I've got a business to run? You know, I'm going to work 12-hour days. Um, And I'm going to use that to justify not actually confronting myself in the real world and working on other aspects of myself, working on my relationship with my partner, working on being a better parent, um, working on, say, different hobbies, like taking up stand-up comedy or something to that effect and just trying different things. But it's easy to say no to all of those things when you conflate your entire identity with your business. Um, So these days, one of my big goals for 2019 is to work um, six-hour days, so 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., And the reason why I say that's a goal and why that's achievable is because nowadays you have so many automation tools online. um, You can take, take a step back. The way I approach this is I look at all the work that I'm doing. I look at the work that my team's doing and I objectively determine which of these tasks can we either firstly automate or secondly outsource. And even before that, What do you want to cut from this? Like, what's actually adding value here? Are we just doing this because we've always done it? um, Or is it genuinely adding value? And when you do that, you can find yourself um, with a hell of a lot more time um, because you could easily spend 12 hours a day doing all this non-consequential stuff that you can automate or outsource. Um, But not only that, if you look at the science of flow, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, basically, you can only really do deep work for four to five hours a day. And Cal Newport, who I know you're both a big fan of, um, says that as well in his book, Deep Work. So if I'm at the office until, say, 7 p.m. from 7 in the morning, I'm only doing deep work for about one third of that time. So the rest of the time is basically residual. uh, You know, again, cognitive scraps, rather than just sitting at my desk pretending to do work and looking at MSN and things of that yeah. nature. I don't know if anyone looks at MSN. <laughs> uh, I could actually be out there living life, working on myself as a person, and I can come back the next day better, stronger, more mentally present, um, and so can my team. And that way we bring our best, the best versions of ourselves to the office every single day because I don't get into entrepreneurship to sit in front of a computer screen 12, 14 hours a day. I mean, I enjoy skateboarding and I'm trying to learn how to surf and I like being outdoors and I like trying different things like stand-up comedy and, and whatnot and that to me is a big part of life like that work-life integration piece is huge mm. um, and some people listening to this will say well that's that's not right you know you got to be hustling all the time I yeah. uh, listen to Gary Vee it's all about the hustle outworking everyone else but not every hour was created equal if I can put in six solid focused hours over 14 hours relatively focused hours then I'm going to take that every day of the week yeah maybe but, not every day maybe just yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah that Gary uh, Gary V his his whole spiel I loved it when I first heard it but then yeah if you really think about it it's mm. it's a pretty dangerous routine to get into and not even
2: mm-hmm. productive Yeah, and and people will often put their own narratives on you. So, for example, in Gary Vee's case, like, you know, I respect a lot of his, obviously, a lot of his work. He's a fantastic entrepreneur. Uh, But in his case, you know, he moved to the U.S. from Belarus with his family. I think there was about 12 of them that shared a studio apartment, had it really tough growing up. Um, But through a lot of hustle, managed to build a business for himself. And now he's, you know, one of the world's biggest Influencers in the entrepreneurial space. Um, so for him, he, that's his story, right? So he thinks that this is what everyone else should do because it worked for him and because he derives a hell of a lot of identity from that, yeah. um, which is understandable. Um, you know, we're all deriving identity and our worldview from our past experience and upbringing. Um, but I don't think be, because it worked for him doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Um, it's just the same as, say, a personal trainer who's going to give you their. Uh, plan for getting big and ripped, but you've got totally different genetics, uh, different um, work, or well, different uh, realities in terms of your family situation, your work situation, your life situation, where you live, all that sort of stuff. So, because it works for one person, doesn't mean it'll work for another. So, that's something to just always be aware of like, who is giving me the guidance here and the advice, and why might it not apply to me, and why might it apply just to them as well? Hmm. Yeah,
0: I really like it. And your final thoughts of the book, uh, you talked a lot about sort of regret minimization. Like if you get to the end of your life, the things you're not going to be saying are probably, oh, I wish I would watch more Netflix or I wish mm. I'd check social media more. How does that sort of tie into, you know, how you're living your life now and compared to, you know, projecting to the future and thinking back? What are some of the things you I think you're probably not going to say?
2: Uh, one of the things I'm not going to say, I mean, for me, I'm definitely not going to say that I wish I did more valuable work or or that I connected with more people, for example. Um, I mean, through the, through the work I do, whether it's ambitious startup founders or whether it's, say, 10-year-old kids as part of the Lemonade Stand program, uh, you know, one of the, the proudest days so far that I've had at Collective Campus was when an 11-year-old who came through the Lemonade Stand program emailed me off his own volition and basically said, hey, Steve, it's been three months since the program ended. Just wanted to say thank you for um, exposing me to entrepreneurship and showing me what's possible. I've since launched my online business. Here's a link. Um, again, just want to say thank you for... For for showing me the way, and he actually closed out that email trying to sell me a stand up paddle board. <laughs> uh, ended up buying a uh, paddle and putting it up on the wall here, not an entire board because <laughs> the board was like a thousand dollars. I was like, I'll take a paddle for fifty. Um, but that kind of stuff where you're actually having a transformational effect in people's lives, um, that's very empowering, uh, and it's definitely not something that I will sit on my you know deathbed and think you know oh wow, I should have done different different kind of work or. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not the case, Um, but I think, yeah, I I did say something about human connection there as well, and I think it's easy to get uh, derailed and focused just on your business at the expense of human connection, Mm. Um, and that's one of my big things for 2019, focusing more on developing new connections with people uh, who I normally wouldn't connect with or build connections with, because that is also a great source of um, fulfillment and contentment uh, with what we do, so yeah, and by doing the six-hour workday thing, it gives you more time to do that, right? So, you know, there's a plethora of tools out there. Um, just, just going back to that, um, that can help people um, win back their time. And just an example for content creators out there, uh, is an ex- there's a tool called Repurpose.io. So if you were to create, say, a Facebook Live video, Um, it would automatically turn that into a podcast episode, a YouTube video, an audiogram, post on social media, whereas so many people would do all of that themselves. So rather than spending, say, half an hour just creating the Facebook Live video, they end up spending seven hours doing all of the repurposing themselves. Um, And that's just an example whereby that kind of stuff applies across everything. Um, We've got automation set up um, in conjunction with outsourcing tools. So for example, because we do B2B work, we have an outsource, we have a virtual assistant who will identify media mentions. So if we track keywords like digital transformation, so if a senior executive at a company gets mentioned in an article around digital transformation, our VA will pick that up. She'll find their email address using uh lead IQ that will get imported into a automated email, which is personalized and gets sent out saying, Hey, Mr. X, saw you got mentioned in this paper talking about digital transformation. This is what we do. We'd love a 15 minute conversation. Here's a link to book a time that is super targeted and personalized. And it works a hell of a lot of the time. Like we've, want some really big deals on the back of stuff like that. And that's just, I don't do any of that. I that's just phenomenal. see the uh, meeting uh, entry come in. So I just wanted to double down on that because I think we kind of rushed over the um, productivity stuff. But, you know, there's no point becoming an entrepreneur if you're going to have no life. Like, yeah. you may as well just work in the corporate world eight hours a day, whatever it is, uh, make a comfortable paycheck and still have mm. your evenings and weekends to yourself.
1: Yeah. And this idea of automation, its it's becoming more and more accessible every single day it's becoming more and more powerful. I mean, mm. if you look in 50 years' time, we've just recently read a book on artificial intelligence, which is Life 3.0 by Max. I'm going to say Zuckerberg. Techmark. Tech yep. There we go. <laughs> I kind hey, of just make it. <laughs> <laughs> Max Zuckerberg. I kind of just go with it sometimes, which is wrong. But uh, yeah, if you look at the <laughs> the longer horizon, it's this automation's coming wild. So it's people like yourselves who are getting on it really early that yep. people are going to capitalize on it most and uh, get the most from it. Um, One of the things we ask all our guests who come on the podcast is what are your favorite and most influential books for yourself being an avid podcast consumer as well, Mm. we extend it to podcasts as well. So most influential books and also the podcasts that are impactful for you.
2: Yeah. So as I was saying earlier, you know, business books for me are very helpful. Um, You know, you can stand on the shoulders of giants, learn how to build prototypes, test your ideas, better market your idea, sell better, all that sort of stuff. But at its core, the books that were most transformational for me are around mindset and philosophy. So um, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, uh, which are the journals he kept while he was, you know, the king of the Roman Empire back in like 120 AD. Um, they were never meant for publication, but they were found after his death um, and now available under the guise of Meditations. And you know, the reason why that's so powerful is because he was you know, preeminent. He was the, the ruler of the free world, yet so I would say humble to a certain degree, um, and so self-aware as well. Like he would say things in there around pain. What is pain? It's just my judgments of it. Um, If I remove the judgment that I am hurt, then the hurt itself is removed. Um, And he would say things like, you have power over your mind, not external events. Realize this and you will find strength. Um, Because it's so easy to go through life and be reactive to absolutely every external stimuli that comes up, right? And as an entrepreneur, like you're going to face a hell of a lot of uphill battles. Uh, you're going to have proposals that you spend two, three, four hours working on after several meetings. You're going to send that out and that prospect is just not going to get back to you, not going to answer your calls, even though they said, yeah, man, we'd love to work with you. And that's called the counterfeit yes. People find it much easier to say yes to questions like, oh yeah, are you interested in working with us than it is to say no, because we just have this innate desire to be liked. Um, so Meditations by Marcus Aurelius just gives me the grounding I need to focus it's basically like, as Tim Ferriss says, it's an operating system um, in which to show up in the world uh, with every day, um, and it just helps me make better decisions and not be so, not be at the mercy of emotion, um, if you will. Um, second book, Mindset by Carol Dweck. I'm um, just not even the whole book, just the whole concept of mm-hmm. growth mindset versus fixed mindset, um, which helps again to help develop a positive relationship with adversity. Um, because if you want to do anything in life worth doing, you've got to be comfortable with that discomfort that comes your way. Um, you know, I'm currently trying to learn to surf, and you know, when you're paddling out on this eight-foot board, it's really shaky, and you have a wave coming at you that's about three feet high, and it just knocks you off your board. It's very easy to just give up at that point. But when you have that relationship with adversity when you are familiar with concepts like a growth mindset when you realize that the obstacle is the way uh, to quote ryan holiday you get back on the board and you keep going and eventually after like 15 minutes of paddling out in my case you get into a position where you can turn around and actually catch a reasonable wave or at least try without wiping out Um, but i think so many people just shy away from that discomfort um, at the first hint of it and when you shy away from that you shy away from opportunity as well Um, so that was the second one and the third one Probably a business book, just a lean startup, just because I think the whole notion of tight feedback loops, rapid experimentation, not not only when it comes to entrepreneurship, when it comes to anything, like if you're dating someone, hey, don't go on a hundred dates before you decide whether or not you want to keep seeing them. Like, what are the values that you hold true? Um, how can you determine whether or not they um, have similar values that you can build something together? Because values alignment um, in relationships, in business, in teams, uh, in your Work status, like who you work for, do you align with the values of that organization? I find it's really key to, to build a sustainable relationship with, with with something. So yeah, lean startup, mindset, meditations.
0: Nice. And I like that uh, even though obviously, you know, business books give you the practical skills, but you've, you know, meditations and mindset, they're more about the... Uh, the mindset i guess <laughs> the overall mm. approach rather than the specific skills but just uh that one way to shift the way you look at the world rather than you know one specific how to sell x but this is you know you the books that are just an overarching ideas as, as to a, an approach so i really like that um for sure we talked about your book uh employee to entrepreneur but we haven't talked about your podcast yet no. future squared we had a few um crossover guests uh chip conley mm-hmm.
2: kevin Ann, kelly Andy, kevin Annie kelly Duke. Annie
0: Duke. and you've had some other great guests as well um Adam Grant and a big one I'd recommend. Obviously, Robert Greene was awesome. Uh, Tell us about a little bit about Future Squared and you do some book reviews on there as well.
2: Yeah, I've done a couple of book reviews. Uh, Incidentally, Robert Greene's 33 Strategies of War, um, which coming back to what we said earlier, like learning and reading disparate topics um, allows you to connect dots in unexpected fields. So a lot of those strategies of war, whether it's uh, Napoleon um, whether it's John Boyd, the military strategist, and his concept of the OODA loop, Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. The faster you can do that, the better decisions you can make to outgun your opponent. You'd be surprised what you can learn, say, from the military that you can apply to entrepreneurship. Um, but on the podcast, I mean, that just started out as something about three years ago. It was just going to be like a marketing channel. Let's just see where this goes, you know, get some big names on, and maybe enough people will listen, and we can tailor the conversation to be around corporate innovation and that's what it was initially it was people like steve blank david burkus management thinkers and just talking about how to be innovative inside a large organization but as the as i say you know you go on the journey the path presents itself and i started talking to all sorts of people not just you know corporate innovators and management thinkers started talking to neuroscientists um, philosophers psychologists um, entrepreneurs like you name it um, and today, the podcast is all about unlocking, well, the podcast is all about helping you navigate a brave new world. That's the tagline. Because the world is fast-changing outside our walls. You know, Moore's Law, your your listeners will be familiar with that. Um, over the next 10 to 20 years, up to 45 to 50% of jobs will be replaced. And the only way to really navigate that uncertainty is to build a better relationship with it as Stephen Hawking said, intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. So what we do on the podcast is we just bring together all sorts of preeminent thinkers across so many different disciplines, um, so that people can, um, learn what they need to learn, collect a lot of dots so that they can make better decisions. And, um, you know, we're about 304 episodes in now. Uh, the most recent episode was with Robert Greene, uh, on his book, The Laws of Human Nature. So that was a really fantastic conversation. Um, but, you know, for people out there listening who, Thinking about starting a podcast, give it a go. Uh, you know, For me, not just the marketing stuff, but building relationships with people like Robert Green, like Adam Grant, who has endorsed my book. It's up in lights on the front cover. Uh, becoming a better conversationalist, listening better, uh, learning the art of podcasting, learning the marketing skills that come along with that. Like There are so, so many benefits um, and just more human connections as well, going back to that point.
0: Yeah, love it.
1: Phenomenal and everyone can find that uh, everywhere you find podcasts and people, if they want to find your book, which mm. we definitely recommend, where should they go?
2: Yeah, they can go to employee to entrepreneurio um, They can also download a bonus bundle on that website, which is completely free, which um, has growth hacks in it, sales strategies, ways to test your idea and experiment faster. Um, just a lot of free goodies, but uh, you know, if they go onto Amazon, uh, they'll find the book as of January the 9th today. Sick.
0: Fantastic. Love it. Thanks so much, Steve. Great to chat. And all the best with the book.
2: Fantastic, guys. It's been a pleasure.